Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just you forgot to enter. Whoa. Hey everybody, this is Connor Hallway, aka Big Bochi, aka Coach Connie, aka Little Gutter. Listen, I'm in hour like 21 of a 24 hour fast, so if I'm totally delusional in my message here, my apologies. This morning, I ran an episode with critically acclaimed children's author Jack Yantos. You may be familiar with his books, the Joey Pigs series, the Rotten Ralph series. But he has a biopic of his own life called Hole in My Life, which is one of the most incredible books I've ever read. And that's because I've read like two books. But in all honesty, I listened to it on audio and it's true. Like this dude was really a drug smuggler from the Virgin Islands to New York. He really got busted by the feds. And this whole time it was just because he was neglecting his desire to become a writer. He was an incredible storyteller. Afterwards, he kind of talked about his ADHD, his thoughts on ADHD, and being entrepreneurial as an author. And then he also discussed winning a Newbery Award. And I think what most people can take away from this episode is like, he's a, he was a creative who just executed on a vision his entire career just based on being disciplined, which is hard to come by. But I don't know. He... It was very, very insightful for me, especially because I'm trying to grow something for myself and do substantial stuff in my life. So it was really, really refreshing. With that being said, if you enjoy this episode of the podcast, please just share it with a friend. That's all I ask. And if I'm asking even more, leave a rating, leave a review if you do like it. And if you don't like it and you don't feel compelled to do so, hey man, just send me a DM. Let me know what I can do better. Uh... Honest Grandma at Big Bochi. Listen, without further ado, Abu, take it away, brother man. I love meeting people. So I met this nice British guy at a bar. Um, and he came up to me. Um, I don't know why, but he came up to me. I think I had long hair. I sort of looked straggly and hippie-like. And uh, he said, uh, I'm looking for a guy that you know knows how to get around a little bit in the world. I'm like, oh, well, you're looking at him. And uh, he said, well, he said, I have an offer. We had a little conversation. He got to this point. I have an offer. He said, uh, I've got a boat out in the harbor with uh, 10,000 pounds of hashish on it. And uh, Real quick, can you just elaborate? Because this is probably going to be an integral part of the rest of the story. Can you just elaborate on hashish is for those who don't know? Um, hashish is, is um, massively compressed marijuana. And uh, it's hash. It's it's That's hash. the kids call it. Yeah, it's it's hash, <laughs> and it's and, and it's it's sticky. It's oily. It's it's like it's like like bread, right? Yes, uh, uh, but but com- you know, like if you took a piece of Wonder Bread and just like compressed it, you know, and then uh, let it dry out a little bit, and then put that in the pipe, you would uh, goodbye. Yeah, that would be a lot of wonderment, and so. Uh, so at any rate, so uh, I was like, wow, that's a lot of hash. Uh, so, um, so he said, you know, we're down a man. He said, two of us sailed this boat from Morocco where we bought the hash. Um, but one of the guys has to go to New York and set up the, the selling side, the dealing side. And it's just me on the boat and I need an extra boat hand. He said, uh, for, 
for some money, for 10,000 bucks, uh, he said, uh, can you help me sail this boat? Hello, my name is Jack Gantos, and I write books. I write books for all ages, from picture books all the way to adults. And this is my golden hour. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four dear nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the fire deer attacked. Only Derek, master of all four elements, could stop those boys. But when Boston needed him most, he vanished into the enchanted golden deer forest. Season four! So the double clap signifies the start of an episode. Yes. And, and so, I want to note before we start that this young man to my right is quite clearly in a much different demographic than most of our guests. So I'm excited. To, uh, n- no offense. I'm excited to to learn a lot in this episode because I feel like I'm reaching an age recently where it's like I want to see how successful people have really built careers over time, like doing what they love. And okay. W- w- would you agree that you've you've done that? Yes, I have. No. Uh, step by step by step, and various types of steps. One, for, one foot in front of the other type thing. Absolutely. I don't like to go backward. Uh, nor do I. And hey, before we start, Jack, the other Jack, do you want to swing up here and say hi? Hey, guys. That's my bestie. He's great. <laughs> Two different Jacks, both with luscious hair. But hey, to my right, I have acclaimed children's author... Critically acclaimed, Jack Gantos. Thank you for coming, man. Appreciate it. No, oh, thank you. It's great to be here. It's a terrific studio. We're set up for a great conversation today. Do you, uh, you kind of want to give a quick synopsis of who you are for those who don't know? Uh, sure. So uh, my name is Jack Gantos. I, uh, I write books. I write a range of books, everything from picture books, the Ron Ralph picture books, to upper elementary school books like the Jack Henry series of autobiographical short stories. And then uh, I write the Joey Pigza books. And Joey Pigza got a lot of attention, um, a Newbery Honor Award, the National Book Award. Let's go. Um, and then uh, let's see, what did I do? Oh, then I wrote Whole of My Life, and that's uh, a memoir. Um, Extremely honest. Yeah. yeah. Let's do give a little marketing, a little plug. See, that's my that's me with my good hair, Jack. Yes, yeah. And yeah, that's my mugshot from 1970. And you were 21, right? Uh, 21 when I got out. And so the mugshot was what you were about 19. Yeah. So that was that. So I wrote uh, that book about. Um, my uh, career, my first step career as a drug smuggler, which was a failed career, by the way. And then... Uh, you made it out alive, though. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I made it out fine. Um, I unscathed, and, um, but cleverly unscathed. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, brains really help in prison. And then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, I wrote uh, Dead End in Norvelt. 
which won the Newberry Award, which is probably in my career the the highest award you can you can win in the land for all authors. It's it's the big deal. Yeah, that's uh, that's the big gold medal. How did you celebrate after? Did you go have a couple shots of whiskey? Go to the bar type thing? Champagne. Champagne. You always have to fall back on the champagne. Yeah. Yeah. Where were you when you received it? Um, I was at the uh, American Library Association conference where they give it. And that year, it was in Anaheim. And I was like, Anaheim? You know, I wanted it to be in, like, New Orleans or, you know, New York. L.A. Yeah, Chicago, you know. But Anaheim, you know, you look out the window and you're, like, looking at Disneyland. And so when you had initially figured Mm. out that you were winning that Newbery Award, yeah. Were you like, wow, I'm, I'm really that guy. Tonight I am that guy. Yes, it was. I have this, uh, I have a little bamboo garden behind my house in uh, Boston. And I have a Buddha there. I have a little Buddha. And um, I think the award was announced like on the 11th of January. And I think on the 10th of January, I just went over to Buddha. Buddha had a little, uh, had a little snow cone on his head from a little snow and I brushed it off, and then I rubbed his head, and I said, Buddha, if you could find it in your heart, give me a thought tomorrow. And then, poof, the phone rang in the morning, and there it was. Shout out to Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> do you do it every day now? <laughs> <laughs> I give him a wink as I pass by. <laughs> Another Newbury word, please, yes. please. As Buddha always said, take the high road of happiness to success. So question after you reach, because there's so much we can talk about, but after you reach that pinnacle of your career, how do you, how would you remain inspired? Because it's like, wait, I just accomplished pretty much everything that's out there. Hmm. Um, I think that that's a great question because I think a lot of people kind of, you know, set a very high goal for themselves, and when they reach that that goal, particularly the pinnacle goal. Um, then you kind of go slow down. slow down. There's the other side of the mountain that you go down on. And, uh, and I was aware of that. I, I did a follow-up book to Norvelt, and then I did a book called The Trouble in Me, another autobiographical book. Both of those books were good books, but they were not acclaimed books. And it felt like... I was going down on the other side of the mountain, even though intellectually I was saying to myself, you know, the writing is just as good, it's just as interesting, it's just as potent and powerful. Um, I was not receiving, let's say, the massive love that mm-hmm. you get off of the the award. So then you have to say, well, you know, what is it that motivates you? Is it the massive love or is it really the work? The work. And then you kind of register your refocusing on your work. You just you know, as I say to myself every day, you know, nose down, nose down into that notebook. Because I write all my books by hand first. And then No MacBook. I have a I have a computer, but but it's all, you know, fountain pens and, and notebooks. Wow. And then uh so I just try and get my two thousand words a day, uh focus in on that, type it up at night, uh, mark it up. This is daily. Daily. Uh, so did you, you already wrote 2,000 today? No, I didn't get it in today. My, uh, my, my wife was driving off to New York today, so I was up early uh, with the cats and doing stuff around the house. But then uh, later on today, I'll, I'll swing by the library. Um, I, I go to the library 
uh, and write most of my books in the library. Wow. Which library? If you, don't, if you don't mind giving it away. No, no, no. Well, you can't get in uh, unless you belong to it. It's oh. the, it's the uh, Boston Athenaeum. Oh, beautiful. At Ten and a Half Beacon Street. Yeah. Wow. It's a palace in there. But they have a floor that's the writer's floor. No talking, no noise, no anything. You just show up at your Newbery Award. You're like, I'm part of the team. You just, like, <laughs> yeah. You just go on up there, and you take your seat, and you just, like, try and get those 2,000 words and push the rock up. And so just to answer your question, kind of tidy it up, um, I don't feel like I'm, I'm, I've lost anything. I just am writing books that might not necessarily correspond with the tastes of the field because the tastes in the field change all the time. You're not writing books for commercial success. It's more ideas you want to explore. Yes. Yes. And, you know, and I have an editor and, uh, you know, a publisher and, and so on. Who's so your editor? My editor is Wes Adams at uh, Farrah Strauss and Shout out to Wes Adams. Yeah. Great editor. I've had Wes as my editor since 1992. And uh, we've worked together on all my major books. He's a terrific guy. It seems, yeah, that was something that. I acquired from doing a lot of work with Jerry that over time you kind of develop a team that you niche with in terms of producing books and then you kind of just hit a stride. So mm. have you guys, you guys have produced a ton of books together? Yeah. We've to, I think Wes and I have done about 25 books together. Wow. And uh, was also great because the copy editor, Carla, was also there. So after you finish a book, then the copy editor reads it and she got to know how I liked my sentences so that she would really kind of make these great exceptions and adjustments to the style of my sentences. Where when you get another new copy editor, they're like, oh, they, you know, they read the handbook, the MLA handbook for where commas should go or where mm-hmm. this should go or where semicolon should go, where I don't want those things. But Carla knew exactly how I loved my that, sentences. That Ganto sauce on yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. The special sauce. So, Hole in My Life, I've, I've read it at least twice to three times. And I remember growing up reading it. I'm, I'm assuming Jerry probably gave it to my mom and was like, well, you should definitely have Connor read this. But, but just to refresh, I put it on audiobook the last two days. I didn't get all the way through, but I hit on most of the climactic moments. So I know it's a massive book, and I totally recommend everybody goes and listens to it or reads it, not only to get Jack a couple bucks, but also because it is just an insane story. <laughs> like, this guy was really living, man. And so I'll just lead into, from what I remember, you were kind, you felt kind of stifled for, at like 18, 19 in terms of like you had all these goals and these dreams and these aspirations, and you were moving around a bunch and then you were on your own and pretty soon you're throwing up in a random family's home and then you were living in your car and then things just started getting crazy. Uh, yeah. So, uh, just to sort of, sort of put a little compost to that. Um, so, you know, when I was a kid, I, I, I read a lot. I didn't do much else. I read a lot. I had friends, but I went to 10 schools in 12 grades, so I was kind of always that new kid, you know, kind of a little bit shifty, you know, trying to make friends, 
trying not to make friends, trying to get the right ones, trying to be something. Trying to stick it, fit in. Trying to fit in, and you become the other. You become yourself, and you become another person simultaneously. And so you always have these two voices in your head. There's not, it's not madness. It's just, you, you know, you're, you're always bouncing ideas off of yourself because you're unsure of who you are. You're like a chameleon. You are a chameleon. You know, and that's it, very true. You do uh, adjust your tailoring to fit the moment. So, at any rate, so uh, um, I was going to get out of, uh, let's see, let's see. Oh, 11th grade, yeah. So, we moved a lot. And my parents moved to Puerto Rico. So, I <clears throat> quit 11th grade, halfway through 11th grade, and we were in Florida. Went down to Puerto Rico, um, worked as an electrician's apprentice. I thought, you know what, I should finish high school one of these days. So I thought, nah, that's a reasonable thought. So I went back up to Florida, and my parents had uh, rented a room in their friend's house. And about that time, I discovered beer. You know, it was like, oh, my God, you drink this, and you only have one voice in your head. How <laughs> exciting that is. And then, uh, <laughs> honestly, and, and, it, and it's leading you down a happy but shady a dark road. So, so it was just beer at the time. There's no hard liquor involved. Nah, it was just beer. You you, know. Do you still drink a little bit? No, I, I love a good cold beer at the end of the day. <laughs> I earn my beer. Okay. So, so at any rate, so uh, so then I just kind of became a high school drinker. You know, you know, pull over in the morning. I had a nice fast Oldsmobile. I'd pull over in the morning. You know, knock off a few uh, uh, PBRs, and then. Uh, and then go to school. Again, smart guy. Hung out in the library all the day, all day. And then I was supposed to go to college. So I drove up to uh, University of Florida, where I was accepted. And uh, a gator. A gator. And that was it. So I had that interview, and they they gave me a gator, uh, a, a gator, a little gator for my car antenna, and a gator sticker, and a gator towel to wave at the football games, and all this gator paraphernalia. And I said, well, you know, I just want to, you know, I really just want to go into the humanities program and I want to write books. He said, well, you know, we don't, we don't have any creative writing here until you're a junior. And then you can take one creative writing course. And I was like, I don't think that's going to work for me. So uh, I thought, I can just write books on my own. So I left. I didn't go to college then. I left. And uh, I couldn't write books on my own. This is really where it started, you know, really where... You know, <clears throat> I'd moved once I'd, I I started living in a uh, welfare motel in Fort Lauderdale. It was the King's Court? King's Court on Broward Boulevard. And, and the name of the lady who ran it was the, she was the queen of King's Court, right? She was the queen of queen King's Court. She sounded like a brutish woman. Yeah. <laughs> and she was <laughs> related to Davy Crockett because she had, she kept Davy Crockett's wallet in her bra. And like she would say, her name was Davy Crockett. And, of course, you know, you're looking at this, like, you know, sort of piece of beef jerky in a T-shirt. And, 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 she, and, and she'd say, you don't believe me? And you'd kind of smile, like, nah, I'm trying to be polite, but no, I don't believe you. And, uh, and is this like Everglades area, Florida? Um, this is closer to Fort Lauderdale Beach. This is about eight miles in from the beach. And, and so for reference, for anyone listening or watching, this area of Florida is much different than metropolitan areas of Florida. Yeah. When, when you start getting in the country bumpkin areas of Florida, you start seeing some crazy stuff out there, man. Yeah, and, and, and Fort Lauderdale at that time where I was, eight miles in, 
you weren't far from, you know, Gatorville. So, so at any rate, that's when she would, you know, pull out her wallet. Say, this is Davy Crockett's wallet. You know, and you'd be like, okay, calm down. And, we believe uh, you. We believe we you, We believe lady. you. believe you. I had room number three. At any rate, she was nice. She, it turns out she was really sweet. Um, so at any rate, so I would just be in this little old motel room with no air conditioning. And I would say to myself, okay, this is my reading. I'd have my reading list. And these are my notebooks. And these are my pens. I had my desk all set up. And, and then I pressed the go button. Okay, dream time. Make it happen, and then nothing happened. I'd read books, and I'd try and write a little bit, and I'd get some writing done. But, you know, there was nothing that, that seemed substantial to me. There was nothing that seemed great to me. There was nothing that seemed to, um, to fulfill my expectations of myself. And after a while, I was getting, uh, you know, kind of down. In, in, in retrospect, do you think that was just a creative block or you were just not confident in your ideas? I think it was uh, a confidence game at that point. I I think, you know, if I had that material, which I don't have, maybe I could look at it now and go, you know what, that's a really great sentence, or this is a terrific paragraph, or that's a good idea. If you knew how to then unzip that idea, add to that idea, build the characters out, get some more language in there, let's bring in some action and some dialogue. You know, that was not the the bones of writing, the the skill of writing, the craft of it was not developed in me yet. I just expected that was going to come automatically. I don't know, by osmosis, just simply because I wanted it to happen, but it didn't. And so um, because it didn't, then the, uh, the self-evaluation part of it was, was harsh. Which is natural at this age, too, I think. You oh. know? And, and also, I think what's interesting, because I've heard Jerry talk about it a lot, but, you know, writing doesn't seem like an aggressive craft but it's very much a sport it's like you have to practice daily and so it's like really intriguing to me to hear that you you've now developed such a awesome career by just putting in the reps daily it's the reps i cannot tell you like like when i finish a novel you know it's so i have to write the novel then i go through 50 to 100 drafts on the novel Okay, so I'm a draft freak, and then it's done. You turn it in, you know, and then mostly it's done. And then you take a week off, just a week. You give yourself a break. Oh, just a week. A couple beers, a little champagne, a little Buddha touches. Just, you know, rearrange the books in the house. You know, just have a, a nice little moment. Go out to dinner a few times. And then a week later, you go back into the library. You were like the village idiot all over again. You're like, last week I was killing it. And this week, nothing. nothing. And there it is. It's like being back in that little hotel, that motel room all over again. Notebook and pen. The first sentences just look like terrible. terrible. But you have now you have the experience of having done this so many times that you realize you're going to start terrible. So just keep pushing, 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 and eventually then you hit the sweet spot and you get going. The meter will move a little bit. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to just continue a little bit? You're in the motel. You're uh... Oh, yeah. So uh, I was in the motel, and then I, I had, you know, I always had friends. I love people. And so uh, so I had this uh, f- a friend who uh, came over, and uh, 
um, he had some uh, some joints. He said, oh, you want to smoke a joint? And I was like, well, hmm. you know, I've never done that before. So he said, oh, yeah, it's really great for your creativity. And I was like, oh, really? And so, give um, me a, give you know, me a taste, man. I'll do anything for that. <laughs> and uh, and so then, you know, it was like the first time I got high. And then, and then it was supposed to be really creative, but, it, you know, I can't say that it was. Um, I can't say it was productive. You just got hungry. Yeah, I got hungry and lazy. <laughs> and and then Where are those brownies at, man? Yeah, uh, and then it just seemed to me that that the you know, the dope I was smoking was sort of became sort of the satisfying uh, feature of my life. Like the writing, if I was going to go write, then I was going to have to go confront myself, you know, like this is not good. This is uh this is hard. But if you just like smoke dope, you didn't even have those questions. There was no little, the, the anxiety was alleviated. I, gone. You were just like, ah, oh, I'm an amoeba. This is fabulous. And so. And, and you uh, were smoking that 70s kush back then. Yes. <laughs> that, yes. That's that hippie's kush. That's right. Yeah. Where you had to smoke like four times as much probably as what you do now. I mean, it was like just to go there. I mean. I can get a contact high by riding the bus in the morning, you know, <laughs> from the people that are standing next I know, to me. You probably take a step in here, see it. <laughs> so, so, no wonder I'm talking so much. And so, um, so at any rate, so, you know, my life sort of shifted in that direction. And then, um, I, so I wasn't getting the writing done. Um, and I it was sort of, I sort of had like one of those come to Jesus moments, you know, where you look in the mirror and you say, okay, what are your goals? Writing books. How are you meeting your goals? I'm sitting around all day smoking dope and not getting anything done. You know, like maybe there's a disconnect. So I thought, okay, maybe it's time to reboot, you know, like, okay, pull yourself back together. So my parents by then had moved to St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. So um, I thought maybe that's what I should do. I should go back. Uh, my dad had a construction company. I can get a job. I can make some money. And then I can save money, go to college, start this whole thing all over again. It's like, so I was, you know, kind of giving myself. a plan. Yeah, I had a plan, and I gave myself plenty of rope, you know, to like, okay, you can do this. Don't be too harsh about it. So I go down there. Um, when you work construction in the Caribbean all day long in the sun, uh, there's nothing left of you at night. Yeah, I'm sure you're drained. You're drained. And then you're draining bottles. You know, you're like, oh, that's a cold beer. Oh, that needs another cold beer. And then... And where's uh, that joint? Uh, yeah. Might as well just get a little crossfade. That was easy and, uh, <laughs> down there. And, I, you know, I found myself so rapidly flipping right back to where I was in Florida. So I'm like, oh, man, this is now two times in a row. I have, like, you know, bailed on myself. Here's the goal. Here's what I'm doing. They have absolutely nothing in common. So I'm like, okay, I still got those two voices. You know, there's, like, the Jack that wants to be something and the Jack that isn't something. So I'm like, okay, I got to do something about it. Wasn't sure what to do, but then you meet people. I love meeting people. So I met this nice British guy at a bar. Um... And he came up to me. Um, I don't know why, but he came up to me. I think I had long hair. I sort of looked straggly and hippie-like. And uh, he said, uh, I'm looking for a guy that you know, knows how to get around a little bit in the world. I'm like, oh, well, you're looking at him. And uh, he said, well, 
He said, I have an offer. We had a little conversation. He got to this point. I have an offer. He said, uh, I've got a boat out in the harbor with uh, 10,000 pounds of hashish on it. And uh, Real quick, can you just elaborate? Because this is probably going to be an integral part of the rest of the story. Can you just elaborate on hashish is for those who don't know? Um, hashish is, is um, massively compressed marijuana. And uh, it's hash. It's it's hash. the kids call it. Yeah, it's it's hash, <laughs> and it's in and it's it's sticky. It's oily. It's it's uh, like it's like a, like bread, right? Yes, uh, uh, but but com- you know, like if you took a piece of Wonder Bread and just like compressed it, you know, and then uh, let it dry out a little bit, and then put that in the pipe, you would uh, goodbye. Yeah, that would be a lot of wonderment, and so. Uh, so at any rate, so uh, I was like, "Wow, that's a lot of hash." Uh, so, um, so he said, "You know, we're down a man." He said, two of us sailed this boat from Morocco, where we bought the hash, um, but one of the guys has to go to New York and set up the the selling side, the dealing side, and it's just me on the boat, and I need an extra boat hand. He said, uh, "For for some money, for ten thousand uh, bucks." He said, uh, can you help me sail this boat? Now, I'd never sailed a boat before in my life. I said, oh, yeah, I'm a great sailor. I'll help you sail that boat. So Captain we, Jack Sparrow. So we, we got like, That's right. So Like that one? Yeah, okay. uh, yeah, yeah, it was good. It was, it was just about like that. And uh, only I didn't have as many tools as Captain Jack Sparrow. So, so at any rate, so um, I pretty much... Uh, Smoked way my way across the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, it took a month to sail the boat. Uh, we were not very good sailors, um, and he was uh, he was kind of a funky this, guy. This is Hamilton, correct? Yeah, Hamilton, and he was naked all the time. He was all the time naked, uh, and and he always had this little pistol, and uh, and you'd always want to keep your eye on the pistol, and he was always messing with me because then he then he'd hold the pistol. Right at his crotch, and you know, you'd be like, "Oh man, don't make me look at your crotch because you got that pistol." But I want to keep that pistol. And they would make me do target practice. I would Jeez. have, I would have to, I would stand on the bow sprint on the boat with a stick and a can on it, and he would stand about. It was about a sixty foot yacht. He'd stand about sixty feet away, and with that pistol. And here we are on the seas, you know, like up and down on the waves, and then he'd be shooting at that can and you could actually hear the bullet whistle by your head and i thought all he has to do is hit me i fall into the middle of the atlantic ocean that's it he just keeps going barbaric it was just a funky wild trip it was a cloudy hash filled smoky trip and so yeah i just wanted to reference Mm. so today's august 3rd oh yeah so 48 years ago you were going through a massive storm and you were looking for Cape Hatteras. Oh, it was forty-eight years ago. Man, today that was a rough storm. That was three days. That was a three-day storm. That's one of those tropical storms, right? Yeah, it came up on us, and uh, we had to tie ourselves to the wheel, down to the wheel, and we would have these like two or four-hour shifts. One guy would go down, all the hatches were down, and. Uh, we weren't running with sail. We would we would just have like a, a reefed, you know, reefed jib, you know, just a little bit, you know, to 
to keep your nose straight, you know, so when those giant rolling waves came, that you weren't parallel with the wave, otherwise it would swamp over you. So the whole trick was keeping the nose going straight into a wave, and then it would break around you. So that's what you were doing, day and the night. And the only way you could do it at night was to have a little bit of a moon, just enough light so that you could see the chop on the size of that wave. Jeez. And that was three days of that. I, I, I didn't smoke any dope during that time. You wish you me. did, though. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, but um, I just wanted to be sharp. I just had to be really on my toes. And Hamilton, too, had to be on his toes. And then we got through that. And then it was like, okay, oh, there's New Jersey. And so we pulled into Cape May. Who knew it was a um, Coast Guard base? We pulled right into a Coast Guard base. And a little boat full of Coast Guard cadets came out. said, welcome. We're flying a British flag. Welcome, they said. I was like, oh, my God, this is it. They're going to board the boat. I mean, you know, the, the hash is everywhere. And, uh, and um, they said, do you need any help? And we said, no. And they left i was like oh my god this is score we're so lucky well of course we're lucky because they already knew the the hash was on the boat they just came out to you know to mess with you to mess with us because we had been followed across the atlantic ocean by the air force the air force had sent planes over to take photographs of our voyage because hamilton had bought all the hashish in morocco with counterfeit American dollars. So the Secret Service, which follows counterfeiting around the world, had tipped off everybody, and boom, boom, boom. So all they were doing was tracking us, tracking us, tracking us. And so, they're like, the, and they're like this naked guy on the ship. There's all this crazy oh, stuff. Let's yeah. just watch this unfold. Yeah. <laughs> so they're they're like watching TV, yeah. you know, like reality TV. And they're probably laughing, like, look at these two nimrods. They can't even sail. <laughs> so, anyway, you know, and, and they think they're so lucky. They aren't arrested. And, uh, and so we sail into New York City. Well, Hamilton meets his partner there. He's already lined up all these deals. We have to make deliveries. So how do you make a delivery in New York City? I'm like, geez, I don't know. You know, it's like 100 pounds here, 200 pounds there. So I go to a grocery store. I rip off a, a grocery store cart. And uh, I just go down to, you know, where the 59th Street uh, boat basin is there in New York. I think it's 59th Street. And uh, we were there, moored there. So um, I would fill up the, the grocery cart with these bricks of hashish. And they were in duffel bags, in these white duffel bags with green stains running down the sides. And, uh, and then I would just push this uh, cart uh, grocery cart through the streets of New York City until I arrive at the at the address I was supposed to deliver it to, and then uh, you know I'd ring the doorbell and um, a guy would come out and like we'd haul the hash into the apartment and then uh, he would either pay me the hundreds of thousands of dollars or he had already paid Hamilton in advance. Mostly he'd paid Hamilton in advance because I'm sure Hamilton didn't trust me. And so what happens? So. This is going magnificently well. We never see a policeman. I don't want to be a writer. I'm a pro-drug smuggler, man. I'm like, man. High as a kite. Yeah. Plus, you know, I'm thinking this is going to be great. Hamilton hasn't paid me yet, but he will. 
Now, you got to real, realize like $10,000 is worth like $100,000, you know, so it's like... Big score. It's a big score. Four years of Harvard was $10,000 back then. It's not now. So, at any rate, um, we get down to the last like 100 pounds. And by then, Hamilton sort of had a feeling. He just had a feeling that something hinky was was going wrong and so we moved into the chelsea hotel in in new york city and uh, that was kind of cool at the time because it was kind of like a a real sort of andy warhol crowd hangout you know still it's similar now still very hipster yeah it's very hipster and you know we were going to like max's kansas city and seeing the new york dolls at night and you know you know that whole crowd it was, it was just great and then uh and then one day just a few days later, uh, um, Hamilton went down to the lobby, and that's when it hit the fan. Busted. So three, and this was this was an amazing uh, feature on his part. So he was pretty quick-witted. So he goes down to the lobby. I'm still on the staircase coming down, so I can hear what happens in the lobby, but nobody can see me. So I'm behind him. He goes down to the lobby, and I hear, stop. And three customs agents came in and grabbed Hamilton and wrestled him down to the ground. So you hear this wrestling, the screaming, the slapping, the fighting. And I'm back on those stairs in the shadows. I'm like, oh, this is not good. And then Hamilton does this fabulous thing. Three more guys come in, and they're FBI. And Hamilton goes, says to the customs agents, he goes, see those three guys? They own the boat. The customs agents jumped off of Hamilton and tackled the FBI guys, right, because they had not been communicating well. And Hamilton runs out the back door of the Chelsea Hotel, runs down an alley. What a baller. And escapes. Unbelievable. But it's a bad ending. So Hamilton has this beard, like a, a big sponge. It is the most beautiful beard you've ever seen. And he groomed it every day. It was his pride and joy. Has this big uh, beard, and it's a very noticeable item. So Hamilton runs down the alley. He's desperate. He sees a barber shop. He runs into the barber shop, and he says to the barber, "Cut off my beard." The barber looks at his beard and goes, "That's the most beautiful beard I've ever seen. I I cannot cut that beard off." Hamilton's like, "Cut the beard off," and he's like, "No, I refuse." So Hamilton runs out of the barbershop to find another barbershop, and boom, that's when they popped him right there. So they found him, because they blocked off a 10-block area of New York City looking for him. So in the meantime, I'm on the stairs. I'm like, I'm not going down the stairs. So I go back in the room. By then, I had been paid. I had $10,000 in $10 bills. He, he held up his end of the bargain. He did, just fine. So I had that, and I had a big stack of hash bricks, and a duffel bag. I threw it all in the duffel bag, opened the window of the hotel room, and a fire escape was there that went down the stairs to the alley. So I go out the window with my duffel bag, out the back, and I run off, and I go to Penn Station. I'm like, I scamper away. All this with Hamilton is taking place, but I don't know it. You know, at the, at this point, I How just. How did you remain poised to do that? I would be flipping. I was flipping, but there's also that adrenaline, 
like, you know, like somebody's reaching for the back of your neck, you know, every second of your life. So, so like I go there and then like, what do I know about being a criminal? Nothing, nothing. Apparently I'm a terrible criminal. So I think, you know, I've watched all these television shows, change the color of your hair. I say to myself, sure. So, you know, brown haired, so I run into Penn Station. There's a drugstore. I buy some blonde uh, hair dye. I get on a train, an Amtrak train to Fort Lauderdale. And so I get on the train. I go into the train bathroom, and I, I do my hair blonde. You're a fugitive. I, I'm a, now I'm a fugitive, and I'm on the train. I have no idea. But it was, 24 hour, it was a 24-hour ride, and I have to say, it was like, oh, I, at least I could breathe. Nobody's going to, like, find me on the train. I get to Fort Lauderdale. I go right back to the rooming, to the motel, right back to Davy Crockett's grand, great great granddaughter, and I go, "Do you have an extra room?" Oh yeah, you can have your room back. I'm like, "Oh great!" So here did, I am. Did she recognize you with the blonde hair? Oh yeah, yeah. She's like, "Oh, you're blonde." I'm like, "Yeah." Don't you think it looks good? She's like, "No." And so, <laughs> and so I there I was, full circle, all the way back after all of that. You know, from sitting down trying to write a book to now, here I am, blonde, being chased by the police. Tropical storms, you're in the water taking dookies, yeah. there's all this crazy stuff going All on. of it. And I'm like, back to where I started. I'm like, oh my God, I walk in, I look in the mirror, and I look at myself, I thought, how many goals do you have to set, you know, and not reach? You know, this is what happens to a guy that has high aspirations and doesn't get the job done. You know, you're trying to find the quick, easy way out. You didn't create anything, and you don't really have a lot of money, and the police are after you. So I think I should call home. So just let everybody know I'm fine because, you know, I've been on the high seas all this time. My mother and father are like, I wonder what our son's up to. So I call home, and my dad goes, where the hell are you? I'm like, someplace. He goes, uh, well, I'll tell you what. He goes, uh, I've got the FBI out in the parking lot, and uh, they're reading our mail. Our phone is tapped, and they happen to be looking for you. So maybe you should tell me what's and up. And you've been talking to him in a long time, right? No, I, I was like, oh. So I gave him a little bit of what I'd been up to, and then he said, I have a lawyer waiting for you in New York City. Go back to New York and see the lawyer. So I go back to New York. I see the lawyer. To make a long story short, I see the lawyer. The lawyer looks at me, and I'm like a kid. Like, I weighed, I don't know what I weigh, about 120 pounds. You know, I'm like, I'm not very big. You were in small tees back then, too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> extra small. So, so uh, he looks at me, and he goes, uh, how old are you? I said, uh, I just turned, like, 19. And he said, uh, oh. He said, they're just going to slap you on the wrist. You know, don't worry about it. You'll get probation. It'll be, it'll be easy. They'll give all the time to the British guy. I'm like, great. So it didn't quite turn out that way. And part of the reason was that, that unbeknownst to me, historically, that bust for all that hashish was the largest bust in American hashish history. So that made the front page of the New York Times. So when we went to court, so there had been, you know, like a lot of press. Too much buzz. 
And then you show up to court, and they're like, "Wait, this like nineteen year old kid is the mastermind." Yeah, or, 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 you know, I don't know, under the shoe of the mastermind. Mm-hmm. And so, so at any rate, so uh, Hamilton got uh, he got a, a fair amount of time. He got two eight year sentences, and he had to do them back to back. And then uh, he was also a ref uh, had had been on the run. Uh, from the British police because they had uh, caught him with a half ton of hashish in his Bentley. And so he had fled England and had gone to to Mallorca and then did the deal in Morocco, bought another boat, sailed it over. So he was on the run internationally. The hash master. Yeah. Well, not the grand hash master, as it turns out. Quick question. Yeah. Um, You, uh, what is his age at the time i always thought he was kind of old you know but when you're young sometimes you don't really see it now when i look at him i think maybe maybe he was like 38 maybe you know you know when you're eight, 18 38 seems mm-hmm. older but maybe that's how old he was and so after all this goes down yeah do you ever have contact with him again i see him once okay uh uh, so the judge gave me a six-year sentence, and so uh, so I was hauled off to this sort of notorious federal prison called West Street, which was uh, Dutch Schultz's old liquor warehouse uh, that was confiscated during Prohibition. In New York? In New York, on uh, West 11th, West Street and 11th in lower Manhattan. So it was just this uh, warehouse building. With uh, no windows. They were all bricked in. And uh, so went in, and it was all cages. It was all filled with cages of men, big cages, little cages. And you're 19. You must be just terrified. I was absolutely sweating bullets. And this was a crowd of people that were serious people. Oh, this is a maximum security? Yeah, because these people were going to be sent off to, you know, all the, you know, major, major prisons throughout. So... Um, so at any rate, so I was put into this, what they called a tank. It was a large cage with, uh, it had a 36-man tank, had 18 bunk beds, two lights, and uh, I took a bunk bed, thank God. Uh, it was in a corner of the cage and on top, and that's where I was. Hamilton was sent someplace different. He was older, but I was with a lot of, a lot of guys. And all that night, people were, like, reaching up on that bunk bed. And I was, I, the only thing you were allowed to keep. Fresh meat. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt at that Wearing moment. that small tea. We yeah. know you, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We love you. And. Uh, What's up, boyfriend? Yeah, exactly. And I, I, they let you keep your shoes and I had a pair of old fry boots on with big, heavy heels on them. And I just stayed up there because I was in the corner and under a light, and so I, I could hold my territory. So as soon as I would see a hand or a face come up, boom, you'd just kick out. And I got through that first night. And after that, then everything was kind of cool. Like, people didn't mess with me too much. So a lot of ground's been covered. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. So you, just just for the the purpose of the podcast and it's, sure. we don't have a million hours but so you are now out you 
the judge says, hey, man, you don't have to serve all six years. Right. They, they paroled me after uh, uh, about a year and a half. So you are 19. You've been in prison for a year and a half. Yeah. And I think a lot of people right now, they're, they'll be hearing the story and they're going to be saying like, dude, the old times were so much different. Like it was the 70s, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, you were a human in this position. Yeah. And so do you, at the end of this whole escapade, feel like you're seasoned? Like, do you feel like, wow, I just went through insane trauma or is the whole thing just like a whirlwind? Like, what is your biggest takeaway from like right now, Jack Cantos now took away from that uh-huh. entire whirlwind? Um, that's a great question. Uh, it's quite a ligature from where I was then to where I am now. Mm-hmm. And the takeaway, I think, you know, if, if you think of me sitting in that, that motel room trying to get the job done, if you think of how synchronized it was coming back to that same room years later and going, you still didn't get the job done. You didn't sack up. No. And then you're in a cell. And you're not getting the job done. And finally you get out. Now, are you going to get the job done? done? I mean, how many chances can you get before finally, you know, you're never going to get it done. It's going to be irreversible damage. And so, um, so I applied to college from prison and, uh, they accepted you, and they accepted me. The notorious drug smuggler. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't quite write that essay, and uh, although my return address was a federal prison, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think they probably knew. You should I'd, say I have practical business experience. That's yeah, what you should have wrote. Y- yeah. So um, I was accepted. I showed it to my caseworker, and they let me out. And then, uh, and so I got out. Now at that moment. So I, I finally got out. I was finally released. I walked out of the prison. Um, I got on an airplane, and I flew to Boston. And, uh, and I knew a couple people here. And uh, so I thought, okay. So I had about two weeks before school started. And I, I, I hardly left the room. I just didn't, you know, I didn't want to. I didn't, do your I, job. I just didn't do, want to do anything stupid. I was just so afraid that that I it wasn't that people were being mean to me. It was like I was being stupid and making crap decisions for myself. I was like I was the mo- I was a I was the person I was most afraid of. And so um, so when school started, it was like okay, you know this is uh, it's a schedule. So I dove into that. And then I dove in headfirst, and I started getting the job done. And I started getting my discipline and my writing chops. And uh, two years later, my my sophomore year in college, I published my first book. The, was that a Rotten Ralph? Yeah, that was a picture book, Rotten Ralph picture book. And I was still on parole at that time, going down to the parole officer every month. And once I started coming arriving with picture books, because I started publishing picture books, and my parole officer would just go, get out of here. Let me just sign those papers. Get out of here. Look down the hall. You see the guys I'm dealing with here? Get out of here, picture book writing criminal. Get out, and, of, here, get out of here, small shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and then once I graduated, uh, I got my degree in creative writing. And then once I graduated, then the school hired me. Then I became a teacher. and then, uh, And then I just started building up. 
So from picture books to short stories, short stories and poetry to then beginning to write novels. And then, you know, now I have 50 books. So a question. Yes. Yeah. And Ty, you, you're a great storyteller, so you can, you can create a very vivid picture. But at, was there any point where you're like, you know what, man, this must be some sort of divine intervention going on here because this seems like way too crazy to be true. Like, I just, I was on the drug ship. I couldn't get anything done. And wait, oh my God. Now I'm actually a, a pretty good writer and I'm writing real books. Like, do you ever really think about that? Like, maybe I was asking the cosmos and this is what they wanted to put me through. I don't know if I ever quite opened the vortex up to think of the, the cosmos. I think I kind of went the other way. And I think maybe the individual cosmos within myself said, you know, this, is, uh, this has been a dream for many, many years. And it's been a dream deferred. It's been a dream undermined by your own actions. It's been a dream that nobody has taken from you. It's been a dream that you have kicked out of range time and time again. Because it scared you. Yeah. And because it's hard and because uh, you have to own up to failure. And again, those two voices, uh, you could see one as failure and one as success. Progress. And progress. And you still have those, uh, those two contrasting voices every day, even to the, this day. You know, I'm going to go to the library. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to see a mistake instantly and it's going to trigger that thought, you know, that you didn't get that right, rip that out, redo that sentence. Here's new material to add to it. So now I know what I'm doing so that it doesn't seem like failure. It just seems like craft. It seems like vision. It seems like depth. It seems like, like I can manage it. It doesn't make me feel uh, because I write a bad sentence that I'm a lousy person or I – I can't handle the job. It just makes me realize that everything that I see, I evaluate very highly. I mean, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an immense, critical-minded person. And so when I dig into my own writing or anybody else's writing or the world in general, I'm looking very deeply into it and I see a lot of the mistakes. And so in my own work, I can fix that. In the world, I can't. But in my own text, that's where I can be a perfectionist. So, I think it would, and you say this now, you know, after having like such an illustrious career, but at what point did you really start to develop confidence in your ability? Because mm. th that's kind of what I'm realizing with a lot of things I've been doing th through the repetition is kind of where you develop the confidence. In anything, I, I I would I would say that 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 term rep, you know the the word repetition the the fact that you you know that every day you get up and you try and push the ball forward you know you just want to move it I don't wake up every day saying I must write the whole novel today I wake up going okay I want a thousand or two thousand words that's it you know that's that's it that's it that's it I'm in it for the long haul. And I think a lot of people just think that what 
I do or what you might be doing or what a lot of people do that, that accomplish things is they might think, oh, that was easier for them. It came faster for them. It's manageable for them. And, it's gonna, and, and if I can't get that done in the imaginary quick way I think other people do it, then I'm not good. Well, that's just, you know, it's just BS to yourself because, quite frankly, it does take time. It does take skill. Yes, there is that one person you can point to in life. You That's go, talented. You know, you go, oh, Rambo, you know, changed the course of poetry at 19 years old, wrote two fabulous books, and then he quit writing and became Stanley a, Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. You know, yes, everybody can point out to, the, to some fabulously talented genius or lucky person who did something, but that's not like the majority of us. The vast majority of us have to sit down, organize ourselves, and, and sweat it out and get the job done and stop whining about it. So, so you really forced it into existence, honestly. Yeah. Wow. You have to mold yourself into being the factory. Whoa. That was awesome. So... Well, you also say you have to sit down. And so I know in the Joey Pigs of books, yeah. there's a, I'm, I'm an ADHD boy myself. Good boy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, smart boys. Absolutely. I feel like you got a little ADHD in you too. Mm-hmm. How do you manage the ADHD when you know you have to go and create one of these megaplexes? And what are your thoughts on ADHD? Well, you know, ADHD... Um, um, you know, hyperactivity. Um, Between you and I, it's a blessing. It's the best. You know, I mean, I, yeah. There, there's certain parts of it that, that are, are really, um, if you can harness it um, and, and stay in, you know, stay in that, that concentration lane, man, you can get some stuff done. Um, there are other times when you get very kind of, Fragmented, you know, and you're spread thin. Yeah, you're like a meteor field out there somewhere, and mm-hmm. uh, and and that's not a good place to be. And tell me about it. Yeah, you know, because <laughs> because you're just being whacked. You know, uh, I know what you're saying you you can't go forward. You're just being bounced around. You're like popcorn. And so, um, so there there are things that you say to yourself, like how how best can I manage this? You know, so I like getting up early when my mind is not already focused on something else and and trying to get as much done as I can close to getting up and and early the early hours are my hours or the late late hours I was going to say you sent me a text at like 4.30 in the morning once I was like, yeah <laughs> so this guy is going crazy or, or the, and the late hours because at the late hours you know Almost like a little bit of exhaustion serves you because it takes away some of the job. The, the inhibitions go yeah. down, right? Yeah. And it's like, oh, man, I'm just left cozy with myself. This is good. You know, I'll get it done. So what you do, like anybody, is you, you find out where am I good and do it then. You know, am I a morning person? Am I a late person? Um, am I a person that just can only do this for one hour a day? And then I just like take my time, take, look at my schedule. I find that one beautiful hour, and that's my hour. 
and I'm going to write something. And I think you just have to make elbow room because you can come up with a thousand excuses in no time flat not to get the job done. And this is for anybody. Somebody who wants music, somebody who wants books, somebody that wants to paint, somebody who wants to dance. Any one of the arts, you have to be self-motivated. So you are talking to you. And you better know how to talk to yourself and listen. So for you, it's just been a discipline thing. Yeah. But, you know, in the public conscience, and mind you, I'm not a journalist at all, but... The public conscious ADHD is this massively frowned upon condition. Mm. But I think I've been able to do certain things in my life because I have a, a different brain than most people. Wouldn't you concur? Well, yes. I mean, you know, I mean, you have a way of seeing things and you have an energy for it. Um, and, 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 and you might slide ideas really fast you might you might go through screenshots of ideas in your mind mm -hmm. really really fast and and that can be great as a resource or it could be maddening if you can't control it mm -hmm. and so you you kind of have to come into knowing yourself and like these are features that are mine and i will i will turn them into positive features and instead of negative features and i will say this in really, really a positive way. Um, in schools, when I first started going into schools in, let's say, the 70s and 80s, ADHD, you know, like the those kids were like almost, you know, sort of sequestered, put off in special places. Get that kid in a straitjacket. Yeah, just about. You know, it was always that disruptive kid, you know. And But now, now there's, you know... You sort of, there are better therapies. There are better uh, uh, chemistries that that work with kids, and uh, and more understanding that the kid is not just being like a dis intentionally disruptive kid. That you know that this is a condition, and you just have to work with it and figure out out how to how to provide positive therapy and positive experiences so that the kid learns positive stuff. The Joey Pigsa books. When I go into schools. Kids come up to me, like, high-fiving me all the time. It's like a line at the front door. See, that's me, Jack Gantos, yeah. right? Yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm Joey. Kids will come up to me all the time. Except don't swallow the key. Yeah, don't swallow. That's what I tell them. Don't swallow the key. It's, it's made of bronze. It's not good in your liver. No. I'll go into schools, and the classroom will be hung strings with keys on it, just like That's awesome. Keys, they, yeah, you know, they... That, that they they riff on it, you know, and they've made ADHD just like part of you know anything else. Like what if you know what if a kid had a you know like you know had lost a limb? Well, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. You know, you just work with it, you deal with it, you know. So so it becomes part of the pantheon of things that we have to conquer. So totally agree. There's. I think what you're describing in academia, especially elementary, probably ushered in after Jack and I were done with school because Jack also had learning disabilities. Oh. I was kind of be I was able to finesse my way around a little bit, but I was totally most rambunctious in class most times. But you don't feel like that schools were necessarily embrace embracing of being rambunctious at the time, were you? 
or be indifferent? Yes and no. I feel like it must be new. Well, it's tough because it's like teachers have to, they're a manager of a class. So it's like, how do I, I have all these kids that are the same. And then how do I work in this kid? That's way different. Mm. Essentially. Mm-hmm. So question, have you, when you figured out you had ADHD was taking prescription, was that ever an option for you or? Um, in the early days, uh, Ritalin was the was you know the the drug was the one tool i think that uh that doctors had in the toolkit we call that space dust space <laughs> you call that <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny um but you know ritalin is uh it's a blunt instrument you know and it will work at times and it wears out then you, kids have lunch and then the drug sort of pop a couple more yeah or or Let's say you don't get them in the afternoon, you know. So, you know, morning you're like, okay. And then you have lunch and then you're not Clawing okay. Clawing your eyes out. Yeah, yeah, you know. And and so um, now they have more time-release drugs and, and and drugs that aren't so harsh, you know, that just, you know, they can tailor them to, to, to fit. And uh, Did you and ever consider doing it? Not, not now. I mean, I... I just think now I'm just, you know, I'm an adult. You're the master of your own brain now. Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, I, you know, I remember how it felt and I can probably repeat it if I I wanted to. But, um, but I, I think that, you know, I got through whatever, uh, you know, difficult concentration period it was and behavior period it was and kind of got spit out the other side and got a grip on myself and moved on. Um, You know, the idea that uh, a lot of people think that, you know, well, like, you know, if you, you know, take drugs, you're going to be a better writer, you know, or, you know, you're going to be a better artist of some sort. I used to think that. Yeah. And and um, I I would say, no, that, that doesn't work for me. You know, for some people, you know, they swear by it, but um, I just don't want to feel like it's not dependent, wrong. right? Yeah, I just want it to be me. I don't, I, I don't want it. I don't want it if, and and I don't want it because I don't think I need it. I think I would, if I used it, it would be like using drugs for me. Mm-hmm. It it wouldn't be like taking medicine. Yeah. That would be a a completely different thing. There are people my age that take it because they need it, and it is medicine. But I'm not that person. Show that up real quick. Hey, I got a, a few more questions. Mm-hmm. Is it, hey, this has been one of my favorites yet, man. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you. I could go on for a long time. So I know you should have your own podcast. You'd be great. No. <laughs> Maybe I should. And no, no, we'll do is we'll just get like a, we'll bring up a different illegal drug every time. Let's try it out. <laughs> the, wow. the, the Gantos review. We'll have to bring in a a guest. Yeah. Give it to Mikey and yeah. see, <laughs> see well, what. See well, what you know how like Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg did their show. I yeah. thought it was great. Yeah. Uh, these. Oh, I got most of them. So, so, yeah, 
one quick question. So y- your discipline's much different than Jerry's. So Jerry is also like wildly ADHD. Mm. But he'll he'll write pieces of books here and there and then they'll just like kind of come together. So your process traditionally is just like as you've talked about find that hour, bang it out next Wait. day. Yeah, but I but I'm also the master of the post-it note. Um I always have uh scraps of paper if you you know they're littered everywhere um i wake up at night and i write things down i you know i'm I'm on the bus and i'm writing things down i'm sounds like a horror movie yeah (laughs) i'm in a stairway and i'm writing things down because things are things come flying come winging in at me and my job is to write it down just take that little nugget of gold and then when I finally sit in my chair at the library, Mind I, that gold. Then, then I expand on them. You know, now I open up a notebook and I've got like a, I've got six or seven starting points. And, and I'm like so grateful that I've got those starting points instead of just blank pages. Yeah. And you so, build on it. Yeah. So that's, I, I love that. I love that Jerry does that. I do that. And I think people that really know them, you know, are are always idea conscious. Like you're walking down the street, you know. It's like when you're doing the the most uh, dull thing, you know, the most routine activity. You're an author. Here's a good word: monotonous. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, boom! Something pops into your brain right there. And either you go, "Give me a pen. I'm going to write that down." Or you go, I'll remember that and write it down later. Later, you're doing something else. And you go, where's that idea? And it's like, Let me grab that. so long, sucker. <laughs> I'm out of here. Write that down, boy. <laughs> yeah, write that down. So one thing is, as an author, to be successful, you have to be, and you have been, has been quite entrepreneurial. Hmm. And so it seemed like when I was listening to the book that your, your dad ran a bunch of businesses. Yeah. So do you think you kind of got a little bit of that? That business sense from him? Yeah. I got a a business sense from him, and I also have uh, that sense of uh, making a living. You know, my dad was always, always trying to find the better job, always trying to make a living. In that survival mode, kind of. Yeah. And we had gone bankrupt a couple times, and those were scary moments uh, when you had money, and then one day you had it, one day you didn't have it. One day you had a house, next day you didn't have a house, you know, and so... So success was always pretty essential to you it was and stability and then uh providing it um i I, i'm married i have a a daughter congrats oh thank you (laughs) and uh and so my daughter just uh graduated from from nyu nice would she go to tish um uh no she she went uh she got her degree in art history and uh did a terrific job. What is she doing now? She's working at the Paula Cooper Gallery in, in New York City. So really. she's doing what she loves. Yes, nice. absolutely. It's like, it was like instant Velcro. Got out of college and boom, that, you know, it's right there for her. So in, in both, in, in all of those cases, you know, when, when I got married and then when we had a child and then I thought, okay, you know, don't be your dad. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't be like be be nervous with every 
penny. Just get the work done. Try and be as successful as you can. Live within your means and, 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 do, and do the best you can. You know what the kids call that now? What do they, they call it? They call it securing the bag. Yeah. <laughs> so that means you were trying to secure the bag. Well, you did. You did too. Nice. Well, I'm glad I did secure <laughs> the bag. <laughs> I hope one day I can secure the big bag too. You know, and, you know, but it's always, uh, it, but it's always in every creative field, you know, you're still, you know, part of it is money. Yes. You know, you want a house, you want, you, you know, you want stability. But the other part of it is, you know, writing the book. You still have the same exact goals every time. You're still putting yourself like right on the white line in the middle of the road, you know, and like waiting, you know, mm-hmm. can I get it done? Can I, or am I going to get hit with the truck today? You know, and, and, and that has never changed. Wow. Jack, do you have any questions? None really. Do you have any books coming up that you're writing or coming out soon, like in the publishing process? Um, no, I'm writing a new one. So I, uh, yeah, make sure you get a little marketing off the business mind. So, you know, maybe this is what happens when a a guy reads a certain age in in the writing world. Um, so I wrote a book on writing books. So called writing radar. So this, yeah. So, um, that's who who does most of the illustration. I did all the illustrations. Nice. (laughs) You did all this. Yeah. Oh my God. So did uh, you? Did, so did you do some of the animations on here too? Uh, yeah, some. Yeah, like all these little drawings are all of mine on the website. Wow! So for for those listening or watching, traditionally in business, the publishing business, especially publishing children's books, there's a a friction between author and illustrator, and it's very important because the author will sometimes create the books, but then the illustrator will get a, a hefty piece of whatever revenue it brings in. So when you do all the illustrations, you're taking 100% of the profit home. Yeah. This guy's a beast. Wow. Okay, yeah, so you just want to elaborate on Writing Radar real quick? So Writing Radar is uh, about um, getting your journal set up properly. I think one of the, you know, one of the things people are always concerned about, kids especially, but everybody in, in this business is when you sit down, you know, what are the tools? You know, what do you focus on? And so and so it's getting your journal set up so you figure out how to find ideas, how to organize ideas, how to exploit those ideas, and then how to use all the tools, you know, and, and start getting yourself thinking, you know, beginning, middle, end, problem, action, solution, and all the basic elements so that you can ask yourself, what should I do next? What should I be thinking about? What should this character uh, do? How does the action relate to the theme? How can the dialogue support that? You have to become articulate and ask yourself the proper question in order to get the right answer. Here's a quote. Don't be that writer who waits all day for the, first, the perfect first sentence, or you will grow old while learning to hate yourself and writing. It's a little grim, Mr. Gantos. It is a little grim, but, you know, I'm, I'm in the library all the time. And I watch people looking at the ceiling more than looking at their paper. And, and I, I think to myself, you know, perhaps they're just deeper thinkers than I am. But, but, but like, you know, like, are you getting the job done? And then you see those people get frustrated and pack up and leave. You know, because how much can you hate yourself mm-hmm. for not getting the job? 
job done. It's tough. I like a good eight-hour day. Uh, what about 16? You ever try to really push it? Um, if, I, if I've had to, if I had to meet deadlines, I would, Get it done. I, I would go 6 a.m. To, to midnight. The workhorse. Hey, man, I think we could talk for about years on end, but in terms of podcasts and then being optimizable for the listener, I try to keep it around like an hour and 15, so I think we're about I think there. that's cool. And I would love to do another one with you sometime. Anytime. Talk about more books. With that being said, this is how we check. No questions? You're good? Well, my only question is, uh, is that kind of like the direction you're going with, with your future books? Is more helping people learn how to be the writer that you are? Um, no, with Writing Radar, I think that's going to be a one-off. One-off. Yeah, I'm going back to a, a novel. Um, I have one more contract left with uh, FSG, okay. Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux. Great company. You have any? You got a Scholastic contract in there anywhere? Or? No. No. Okay. And uh, and then I'll get that book in, and that'll be a middle grade book. And then I've got some ideas, some juicy ideas that have been backburnered and backburnered, and I think it's time. I think it's time to go into the vault nice. and pull out pull out the stuff that you say. You know, I don't know if this is going to sell, but who cares? I need to write it. That's what I want to do next. Maybe mixing a little space dust in there too. I'm just messing around with you. I call this space juice. It's pretty much what it is. I call it espresso. Uh, do you drink espresso? All the time. I love it. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> it's my guy. I'd be nowhere without espresso. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would either. Okay, so this is how we start and end the episode. So in a little production tip, you start, we're going to cut up a clip, put it at the front of the episode, and the first thing you say the second thing you say we're going to cut up a clip we're going to put at the end so here you say hi my name is Jack Gantos I'm an awesome children's author whatever you want to put in there and this is my golden hour directly after no break hi I'm Jack Gantos and that was my golden hour okay so I start off by saying hi I'm Jack Gantos I'm a writer of books and this is my golden hour and then I go, hi, I'm Jack Antos. This was my golden hour. Mm. Good thing we're practicing. Normally, I don't even give lead way. This is my yeah. golden hour, and then that was. Oh, that was. Got it. Okay. That, that was. Ready whenever you are, man. Man, you're like Carla. Um, hello. My name is Jack Antos, and I write books. I write books for all ages, from picture books all the way to adults. And this is my golden hour. Dun, dun, dun. Hello. My name is Jack Cantos, and that was my golden hour. Perfectly executed, man. Thank you. Jack, you ready to hit the camera? Yes, sir.